Welcome back to another Empowering Forward Momentum live stream. It looks like I'm having some issues with going live on Facebook, so I guess we just won't be live over there tonight, but we are still live on YouTube and Twitter, so at least we've got that going. Um, last week, I had Gina Mangello on talking about narrowing down your niche to reach the clients that you want to reach, to reach people that you are most um, empowered by God to help. And it was a really great interview. I had some internet issues last week. And so there was a lot of overlap when she talked and I talked. So I'm having to do some work cleaning up the audio before I can release that on the podcast, but I should have that ready to go tomorrow morning. So if you want to go check that out, you can. Tonight, I've got Norm Welsh on with me. And this is going to be a really fun chat. He's a former police officer, 25 years out in San Francisco. So I'm sure he's got a lot of stories that he can tell us. I don't know what all we'll get into, but it's going to be a fun conversation. The thing that I love about vacation in is talking about how God worked him through trauma. Now, I know everybody has a little bit of trauma here and there in their life. Some to a vast degree, some I can't even imagine what they're facing. But everybody has a little little bits and pieces here and there that you know, for some reason or other we haven't worked through in our life. We're going to talk with Norm tonight about how God has helped him work through that trauma, move past it and to create something amazing in life. Like when you let God get a hold of you, amazing things happen. But I'm going to let Norm tell his story. So with that, Norm, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks, Ken. Honored to be here. Thank you. Yeah, I was super excited when I saw your application come in. It's it's not I I have never chatted with sat down and chatted with a police officer, former <laughs> or current like this. So it's going to be a lot of fun, I think. Why don't you give us a little bit of your background and kind of tell us what brought you, I don't know, up to, I said up to where you started your book at, like kind of, kind of where, where you got to with that. Okay. Um, I, I was started off as an auto mechanic and, um, I, I grew up in a Christian family, but like most Christians, we only went to church on Christmas. So I really didn't know anything (laughs) about God, but I felt that wasn't my calling, right? I, I felt a calling to be a police officer. So I went on a ride along and I, I just loved it. And I decided to do that. And But I didn't know what they all have to deal with on a daily basis. It looked so great on TV with all, you know, everything going on and there's no no repercussions or consequences for anything. <laughs> it, was, it was pretty cool. So I became a police officer. I started as a reserve officer in a really small city. And in the city, the, the neighboring city has a small airport, right? And the ne- next to the airport is a shopping mall. Well, I'm, I'm working for just a couple months, just starting to get my feet on the ground. And there's a call of an airplane into the shopping mall. And this was December 23rd. So you can imagine the shopping mall was full of people. Wow. The plane crashed through the roof, literally 50 yards from where Santa was um, um, talking to the kids. And there was a line of kids. Ended up being 14 killed and 74 injured. And that was my indoctrination into what real police work is like. You know, My dad was a military guy, and he taught me my whole life, hey, 
bury your emotions. Don't men don't cry. It, you know, if something happens, you just move forward. Don't don't dwell on it. And that's what the police academy taught too. You know, back then there was no, this was in 84. There was nothing about PTSD. I, I didn't even know what PTSD was, you know? Right. <laughs> so, so I, I, that's why I was good at my job is I was able to, to just push down those emotions. And so I, I went and I got a full-time job later on in another neighboring city. Uh, and this is all in the San Francisco Bay area. And I, I did pretty well, right? I, I went to traffic and tra- traffic um, enforcement. That's when you give tickets to all the people for all the things that they do. You know, <laughs> I didn't have a motorcycle, but um, I had a car. And it, it wasn't that fun because of the, giving the tickets. But it was very um, traumatic because you would have to have the responsibility for investigating car crashes. And it, mm. there's so many crashes and so many people injured, children. Um, I, I've seen... Uh, bodies thrown from cars and decapitated people. And it was really, really something. And nothing really bothered me at that point because I put up this big wall, but I, I knew that I was started to suffer from some depression. About and 10 years how ago, far into your career would you say this was? Well, I started to feel it around maybe six years, but at okay. 10 years I was, I was really deep into depression. Um, and I didn't know why, right. It's, um, I, I messed up my first marriage. It was, that was all my fault. I, um, I, I blamed everyone else but myself, you know, for, for bad behavior and um, just angry, uh, cynical, um, isolating myself from, from everything. And um, I met another woman and we, we got married and she, she saw it. She said, hey, I, you know, your, your character is changing and you really need to seek help. But, but you know, being a first responder is like, nah, I'm, I'm tough. I can handle it. Whatever, whatever this is, I can beat it. Don't worry. But, but you really can't. Mm-hmm. If you're, if you're expected to be the front line of defense, it, yeah. it's hard to, to show yeah. any of that weakness. Right. And if you do the, the police and the fire culture is such where any sign of weakness is a career killer. Right. So mm-hmm. if I were to have gone to my boss and said, Hey, um, I'm really having some trouble here. I need to talk to somebody. The first thing they do is they put you on, on admin leave and they take your gun and your badge. And, um, you know, everybody would know, hey, this guy is, you know, mentally ill. We don't want to work with this guy no more. You know, any sign of weakness, they don't want to work with. And um, it, it's, ne- it, it's not it, uh, it, it's not necessary, but I understand it now because you got to be tough, right? You can't can't go into an armed robbery and, and start crying, you know, you, you have to be <laughs> tough. And um, so I, I kept, I kept moving forward in 1998. I was diagnosed with PTSD. I was also diagnosed with a neuromuscular disease. Uh, there's actually two parts. One is peripheral neuropathy, which a lot of diabetics have. And okay. um, I'm not a diabetic, but I got that where that's the deadening of the nerves in your extremities. And then it was complicated with Charcot-Marie tooth disease, which is a deadening of the muscles in your extremities. Wow. So I had two things going on. And what would happen is I'd get these big blisters, they're called ulcers, on my feet. And um, I'd have to be casted up, in, you know, for, for like six weeks to let those uh, wounds heal. Because if you step on those wounds, it, it doesn't grow and, and the wound doesn't close. 
after a couple years of that, uh, the doctor started to do surgeries. So I had uh, 30 surgeries in 10 years while I was still working. And it was all on my feet. And I was over two a year. And I used up all my sick leave, all my vacation. And luckily, I I was well-respected. And they allowed me to work light duty. So I'd, I'd have to take the time off for the actual surgery. But then I could go into work with the cast on and do, you know, the administrative type work. But during that time, the doctors kept feeding me PT, or I'm sorry, doctors kept feeding me um, Vicodin, Percocet, all kinds of pain pills from the surgery. And to be honest, I didn't feel any pain because the the, the nerves were dead in my feet. And I'm not gotcha. blaming the doctors because the doctors do have a responsibility to, to deal with your pain. But what happened was when I was going through anxiety and panic attacks, I was having nightmares. Um, I was just, I was becoming a real basket case the, the stress of all the, the surgeries and stuff was getting to me. And I started to take the pills, not for pain, but for emotional pain, right? Mm. For, for numbing, numbing my, my emotions. So I wouldn't think of the things that I've seen. Cause I, I mean, if you want, we could go on for hours about the things and, and not that I'm anything special, every police officer, every fireman out there, every paramedic. They, they witness the, the most horrific things that Satan can dish out, right? They just, oh, it, it's it's horrible. And that also played into my denial of God, right? I wasn't agnostic. I was agnostic, not um, atheist. I, I knew something was there, but I didn't really believe in God because how can a kind, loving God allow so much suffering here on, on earth? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so uh, yeah, I'm sorry. How, how did you, I want to, ask you about that and then i also want to go back to something you mentioned earlier but you you talked about how can a kind loving god allow so much pain and that is a a question that a lot of christians face face from non-believers or people who are searching how did how did you answer that question for yourself or or what what brought you around on that or or have you answered that question for yourself no, no, I have answered the question. As a matter of fact, I just finished a book on why God allows suffering, and that should be out within in sometime in 23. But at that point, I didn't, right? At that point, I, I was still not a believer. It took my arrest to, to really, um, that God put people in my path to, to teach me the gospel. And because I really didn't have any concept of who God was, right? Right. All, all I saw was Christians out there that were being hypocritical in their actions and um, the church is wanting money and all this. So, you know, <laughs> in, in your mind, you're thinking, oh, it's it's just a joke. It's it's no good. But when you really learn what the gospel says, it, then that changes. And the gospel is so simple that a lot of times people don't present it properly. And it's um, like I was many times I was told by other other guys, hey, all you got to do is start going to church and then you'll go to heaven. Well, the church has nothing to do with going to heaven. <laughs> You know, yeah. but that's what I thought. I go, I'm not, why do I have to go to church? Yeah, you, you know, you have to tithe. You have to give money. It, so so it wasn't really brought up to me properly in the past. So I, I that's why I kind of still shied away from him. But so I was basically, I, I didn't admit it at the time or even acknowledge it, that I was a, a basically a pill addict at, at that time. And we're coming into 2008 when my mom passed. And now that, that was rough. And then um, in 2010, my daughter got diagnosed with a severe illness, um, liver tumors. And um, 
that's really sent me into a, they, they told us that she needed a surgery and to survive the surgery, it was only going to be a 50% chance to survive. And that really sent me down a dark, dark path and a, a spiral that I couldn't, I couldn't pull myself out of. And um, I attempted suicide a couple times. Um, I, I credit God for saving me, even though I didn't know at the time. Um, I, I just didn't have the guts to actually pull the trigger, but I sat there with a the gun in my mouth and I, I, I couldn't do it. My, my health was deteriorating. I don't know if you guys can see this, but my hands are, are all um, deformed now from this disease. Um, so I had surgery on this one, but this doctors didn't really fix it. They made it worse. Oh, so, man. Wow. I can't zip a zipper. I can't button a button. I can barely tie my shoes. And this was still going back um, 15 years before my arrest. And um, my wife had to sew Velcro in my shirts and in my pants. Um, and I was, it was getting a difficult time to manipulate my, my duty weapon, right? So I really wasn't fit for duty. But my ego and my warrior mentality fought through that and just said, okay, maybe – I can get myself shot and killed on duty. That way my, my family will be taken care of and I'll have a hero's um, a funeral, you know? Mm-hmm. So I, I did a lot of dangerous stuff. Even though I was the boss, I was the, the head of a narcotic task force. And even though I was the boss, I put myself in a lot of dangerous situations, just hoping, you know, something like that would happen. But I never thought about maybe getting shot in the belly or, or, or in the spine, you know, leaving in a wheelchair the rest of my life. You know, I didn't think of it that way. Right. I mean, <laughs> the flawed thinking that we have when when we're going through difficult times, you know, and like, like you said earlier, everybody's been through a traumatic event. And maybe we just shouldn't even say trauma. Maybe it's just the overwhelming life event. Right. Things happen every day. You know, people are diagnosed with diseases, um, people going through divorces that are are, are really um, traumatic because the the fight over the kids and losing a job and, and you know, maybe even financial losses. So everybody, I, I don't think there's one person I've ever met that hasn't been through something that has really kept them oppressed for a long time. So it, in this time that I was just a basket case, um, I was really in a self-destructive mood. And I, I a acquaintance of mine um, was able to, I don't want to say manipulate because it takes the, the guilt off of me. I made all my decisions. I made all the decisions. I'm not blaming anyone for, for my decisions. But I, I was helping a, a, a private eye out. He used to be a cop. Then he turned into a private eye. And he, and he always asked to, for me to, like, do license plates, check license plates from on our computer, you know, uh, check a guy for warrants or, or um, criminal histories. And that's illegal. It's it's illegal for cops to access those those things. But you know, mm-hmm. ex cop, you know, and most most of the guys I know did it, or, or I don't know if they're still doing it. But but that doesn't make it right. I'm just saying that that's that was my mindset. And he was going to bring that forward. Um, he needed some money, and um, he had a guy that was wanted to buy some drugs, and he needed some money. So he convinced me to to steal the, these drugs, methamphetamine, out of the um, storage locker that, that we used and give it to, to him. And I don't know if it was self-destructive. I don't know if it was an adrenaline rush. Um, that really wasn't me because I've been a cop at that point for over 25 years. But for some reason, I, I just did it. 
And again, I made my own decisions. I'm not blaming him at all. I made my own decisions. And basically, uh, when I did it, I gave it to him. I, I was arrested that same that next day. So my first drug deal was basically, and I was a narcotic <laughs> officer for 16 years. If I wanted to sell drugs, I think I could sell drugs without getting caught. Right. That, my mind was just, you know, trauma profoundly changes the, the way you think. It's, um, it changes your worldview, your, your value system. It, it really plays havoc in the spirit. Yeah. What you, you mentioned car accidents and, and some of the things like I imagine you've seen all kinds of stuff being in the narcotics division. What are some of the the traumatic things that your everyday police officer may know, maybe not even on the narcotics side, but small town officer, what are some of the things that they would face as a traumatic event? Spousal abuse cases where, where you go and you, you respond to a, say a, a husband beating a wife or girlfriend and they just beat him to death. Um, and those are the most dangerous calls. I lost two friends um, to shootings on um, domestic violence cases. They got called to the house. They were walking up the, the driveway or walkway. The guy jumps out and just shoots and kills them. And these are two separate mm. incidents, you know, probably about 20 years apart. But yeah, I lost lost two, two friends um, to that. Um, traffic accidents are, are the worst. Um, like I said, I, I've taken accidents where children died. Um, I've taken accidents where people were de- decapitated. Um, I've, I've taken calls of um, SIDS death, sudden infant death syndrome, where the, the baby dies in the first six months of, of life in the crib. They call it crib death, too. Um, I've had to hold these these dead babies in my arms, you know, doing um, CPR. Um, I've had a, um, a toddler die in my arms from drowning. You know, these are the things that just impact every officer, you know, a small, big department uh, suicides. I've been to dozens of suicides, and I think that's one of the reasons why I couldn't do it. Some were successful. In other words, some were really horrific where the scene, I don't want to describe it here, but the scene was just horrific. And others where they may, they couldn't they couldn't do it right, and they, they survived, but they, their face was just, you know, horribly mm-hmm. disfigured. And I think seeing those horribly disfigured um, attempts, I think that was one of the things that kind of stopped me from, from doing it, which I believe God put those, those thoughts in my head, but those are things that everyday cops go through, you know, just, um, nowadays when people hate cops, I I believe that there's a lot of people now that really hate cops. I think that alone is, is difficult to take, right? Yeah. Oh, go ahead. I wanted to ask, I wanted to ask you about that. You know, officers often do get a bad rap, you know, some deserve it, some not. And as, as a non-officer, you know, it's hard to tell good from bad, any of that. And I know probably 99% are, are the good officers, but do you think that the trauma that you face on a day-to-day basis, the hardening of the emotions, the everything that you see and go through, does that maybe play into some of the interactions that you, that officers have with people and, and contribute to the bad rap that officers get? I believe so. Yeah. During my career, I've met a couple of racist officers, but most of them, like you said, 99% of these guys are, are great people. 
the the problem becomes when you're working a, a certain cultural, you know, uh, a, a certain demographics in an area, and you see violence on a, on a daily basis, um, and, and not necessarily toward the police, but towards each other. You know, there there uh, gang gang activity, drug dealing, people getting shot and, and, and killed, and, and drive by shootings. What happens is, yeah, the the trauma builds up because you're not letting it out, right? And what happens is they begin to judge a, a certain culture of being extra violent, you know, mm. not racist, but if you see um, uh, white people shooting each other every day, you're going to be very careful when you see a, a, a white person that seems to be acting suspicious. And, and I believe in my heart, that this is what's happening with all these shootings of, of people that are um, unarmed. I think they jump the gun a little bit, but because of all the stuff they've witnessed, all the stuff they've seen, I don't want to say they're scared. And, and that's not really the, the term that's going to be proper, but they're more suspicious, right? And and everybody in their mind has got this line. Okay. If, if he does this, if he pulls his hand, you know, out of his pocket and he's got something in his hand, I'm going to, to have to deal with what I have to deal with, not knowing what it is. could be a cell phone, right. could be a gun. And that, that's how I believe these things happen. Now, there are definitely a lot of racial incidents where you, you see a, a few or even just one officer beating on a, a suspect that's um, defenseless on the ground. And, and that's, I, I don't know about that because I, I see that in the news a lot where even officers fighting themselves, you know, that there was one where an officer uh, was going to punch a girl, uh, another female cop. So I can't really talk about that, but that's out of line. And that's probably an, a, a severe anger issue. And the anger could also be a result of PTSD too. Right. But that's, that's my take on it. I mean, like I said, I've been doing this a long time. I know a lot of, I have never shot anybody. Um, but I know a lot of people that have. I know a few people that have actually had to kill somebody. They were all definitely legitimate um, um, shootings. There are shootings that are not legitimate where the guy jumps the gun or, shoot, or shoots the guy when he's not even a danger. But I believe that majority of these things are are related to the trauma because we don't deal with it, right? We're afraid to because we're afraid what our, our peers will think. They'll They'll think that we're weak and we're you know, not really fit for duty anymore. Right. Have Have you seen that culture shift at all where if somebody is dealing with some issues or has, has some emotional things they need to work through or some traumatic experiences, has that culture changed at all since your time? Well, I've been out of it now for about 13 years. And um, I hear from guys that are working now that it has not. However, you hear from the police department administrations all over the place in, in the rural areas, as well as, um, you know, San Francisco, Oakland, all that, that, that they are trying to take care of the officers. But when you have a job, like even like firemen, you have to be tough. You have to have a warrior mentality and you have to be able to handle business. Right. So in that case, it's very difficult to tell an officer, Hey, you need to be in touch with your feelings when he might be subject to somebody drawing a gun on him or, or, or just attacking him. I mean, I've been attacked just standing there talking to somebody. All of a sudden the guy, 
just goes goes crazy and, and attacks you. So there's a fine line. I don't have the answer. I, I wish I did. I don't have any suggestions. I, I wish I did. Because if you change the culture, you might put officers more at risk. You, you know, see what I'm right. saying? I mean, if they're if they're getting in touch with their emotions and, and they're 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 crying it out like they should be doing, they they, they might lose some of their edge. So, right. so it, is a, it is a fine line, right? Yeah, for but sure. I, I, can, I can see from both sides how that would be a hard line to walk because as an officer. You don't want to, even if the space is there for you to be able to take some time, you know, take a week to work through something, you, you know, the, I'm sure the head of police doesn't want to put people out there like that, that has some issues for fear he might, who knows what, and he doesn't want to not be on the job when he went out there to protect and serve the people. So I can see how that would be a, a hard line to walk from both parties. Yeah, and the administrations, they all want their officers on the street. So if, if you should get into some critical event and you ask for time off, they're very hesitant to give it because you're, you, you're a hole, it's a hole on the street, right? You have to plug that with an officer on overtime and then the overtime budgets. It's, it's a lot more complicated than a lot of um, people try to make it out to be. You know, like uh, defunding the police, that, that, that's not going to help. We need, we need more training. You know, I see what they're saying, and I agree that maybe mental health professionals should be available. But I know there's some cities out here in the Bay Area that are putting these um, psychologists on the street, and they're responding to calls. Well, we've had, in, in the cities that I've worked, we've had mentally ill people just attack officers for no reason because of the, the mental illness, right? Mm-hmm. So the, the first psychologist that gets injured or, or killed, that's going to stop too. You know, so right. there's a fine line. I, I just, I just don't know where it is. All I know is that what we should be doing is we should be allowing the officers not to suffer any repercussions by seeking help. And that's where I think the church can do a huge, huge service to, to the communities, because if they saw me going into psychiatrist's office, you know, obviously they would know what I'm doing. But if I went to the church and, and spoke to a, a perfect, you know, a Christian counselor there, you know, they might just think of just going to church. Right. So that's why I ended up writing this book was because I feel that the churches should be more involved with it. Mm. Have have you seen any progress on that front with with reaching out to churches and and developing some kind of programs to help their local police departments? Well, I've I've been trying, but the the churches are um, that they're already staffed and they're already have their policies and procedures down. So it's it's like a a battleship, right, or a a, a big giant ship. It it takes a long time to to turn. It's just like police departments. You know, they're talking about the right things, but in actually implementing them is a little bit different because it takes a long time to shift attitudes. There's a lot of cogs in the machine. (laughs) Right. But what I do see, which is really positive, even the police departments that I've worked in the past, that we never had chaplains, that now they all have chaplains working there. And these are non-denominational chaplains. So if, if you're a non-believer, that's cool. If you're a Muslim, that's cool. Buddhist, whatever. Um, 
the chaplains will will there to talk to you at least to give a place to vent right and i i think that's a great help and these chaplains are, are doing a phenomenal job it's it's just it's very tough to earn the trust of anybody in that um, culture because tend not to trust anybody right right you mentioned your daughter being diagnosed with an illness did mm. did that time coincide with God getting a hold of you or kind of no no that was, was part of like that was part of the downfall um, so it was a um, few months after that where I got arrested so God worked the arrest was the best thing that happened in my life because after my arrest I bailed out and I went home um, there, there was a pastor named Jeff Kenny who uh, ran a church out here. And he got my number from a friend of a friend. And he calls me one night. And um, again, I'm not a believer. So when he said, my name is Pastor Jeff, I just kind of like, yeah, yeah. What, you know, boy, I didn't say it, but yeah, yeah. What do you want? So he <laughs> said, hey, I heard about what happened and I'm opening my church doors up to you. Uh, we do counseling here if you need it. And I just wanted to, to let you know that we have you have a home here if you want it. And I, I didn't believe it. So I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, thanks. But I, I appreciate the call. So this is what he does. He goes, well, before I hang up, can I please pray for you? Yeah, I'm, you know, I said yes, but in my mind, I'm saying, yeah, go ahead and knock yourself out. You know, <laughs> and, you know, I'll be really sarcastic, but my mom taught me to be real nice. So he he prays the sinner's prayer, and I didn't know what the sinner's prayer was. And so when he finished it, he said, "Do you accept Lord uh, Jesus as your Lord and Savior?" And I I didn't know what to say, so I said, "Yeah." He goes, "Okay, well, this is where my church is at. If you want to come, you're welcome anytime." So I hung up. I went back on the couch and sat with my wife and uh, she looks at me and says, you know, what? Well, what's wrong? And I said, well, no, nothing's wrong. She goes, well, something seems strange. And, and then I started to think about it. It was almost like there was a weight lifted off my shoulders. Right. It wasn't like a this phenomenal thing that just happened. It was like it just I felt better, just a little bit better. So my wife said, hey, let's why don't we just go to church? Maybe that's what's missing out of our lives. She grew up a Christian, too. So she was a believer. So we went to the church. It was phenomenal. Um, um, everybody just welcomed us with open arms. And it was just really strange. But um, but I loved it there. I ended up becoming a church member there. And he taught me how to pray. And it was um, during one church sermon on uh, Sunday, he just stopped in the middle of the sermon and said, I think God's calling me to pray for, for Norm and his daughter. And so he stops, he asks the congregation to pray with him, and he prays for healing for, for my daughter. And the next week, just so happened, as we went to do a biopsy, they said, okay, we got to do a biopsy before we do the operation. They did the biopsy, everything went well. A couple of weeks later, um, we go to the doctor, and the doctor couldn't believe it. He goes, well, there's, it's normal liver t- tissue. I can't, the, the tumors are gone. I don't know how to explain it. And I got real mad at first, you know, thinking, okay, you know, this is what caused my really my downfall. And he said, no, he he showed me this this the scans. He showed me the newest scan. He showed me uh, the the um, UCLA Medical Center's uh, uh, supplemental reports. And at that point, right there, I, I truly believed in God. I felt like you know God wow. healed her, and th- there's just no other explanation. And that was the start of my um, my relationship with God because then I truly believed. And um, so I kept going to church. I was out on bail for two years. And uh, when I finally pled guilty to the charges and I got sentenced to 14 years in federal prison, they shipped mm-hmm. me off 
to uh, Fort Worth, Texas. And, if, and I was so angry that they sent me to Fort Worth because I'm in California. I go, how is my family going to visit me? How, where am I going to get the money to, to have them come out? But in Fort Worth, Fort Worth the next day when I, after I got there, um, I went to the chapel, ended up getting a job at the chapel, um, ended up finding out that they had um, a seminary coming in, Tyndale Seminary. So I ended up going to seminary there and ended up getting my master's degree in theology and counseling. And wow. I went on later to get my uh, doctorate in Christian counseling through through the seminary. And I was able to, the, the chaplain there was allowed uh, me and another guy to, to help counsel um, some of the other inmates that he didn't really want to deal with, you know. And that's where I kind of learned how God heals because I started studying the Bible on, on healing. And that's eventually that's why I wrote this book. But after my daughter was healed, it was, it was just it was just phenomenal. I mean, that set me on fire. And after about um, less than a year of really working um, on biblical scripture and, and praying and, and doing the things that um, promote healing, God healed me of my um, PTSD, too. I haven't had a PTSD symptom now for almost 10 years. Wow. It's, it's been phenomenal. Yeah. It's just it. And, and that's why I wanted to put out this book because it's the Bible spells it out, right? The Bible is our owner's manual that we can go to. But the problem is we, a lot of times we read it, the Bible epi- ac- academically, but you got to read it with your heart, right? You have to, to look at it and go, okay, how does this scripture relate to me? Does this teach me anything? Does this show me anything? And, um, it does, right? When you're going through difficult times, it, it says in Corinthians that when you go through tough times and God helps you through it, you're expected to help others that are going through similar things, you know? And then I found, then I started taking um, alcohol addiction, alcohol and drug addiction classes and to get ready to get a certificate. And I found that the biblical principles and secular principles are the same. They just have different terminology, Right. It like um, CBT is cognitive behavioral therapy. It's the same thing Paul says in Corinthians where he says, take every thought captive to, to the to Jesus. In other words, if, if the thought that you're having coincides with the Bible, that's good. But if the thought that you're having is from the devil, like, you know, you're no good. You know, you, your, your dad says you're no good. So you're no good. You got to reject that. That's CBT. It's just changing your behavior. And uh, so I ended up getting my license. And uh, right now I'm working as a drug addiction counselor at a, at a men's facility. And I'm also working as a chaplain. And um, I, I just, you know, people don't believe me when I say that if God were to come down right now and say, hey, well, let's do a do over and I'll take away all the prison stuff, you know, because I was in prison eight and a half years. And you won't have to do that. I, I would turn it down because I learned so much about people. I'm uh, if I would have just retired as a cop, I would have been angry, isolating, maybe even an alcoholic, you know, and I'm not saying that all the retired guys are that way, but it's the job that makes you hate people. It makes it, it's a job that makes you, um, you know, isolate yourself from others, us versus them, the good versus the bad. Right. You know? And I'm a much better person now. My kids like me a lot more now than <laughs> who I was, you know, 12 years yeah. ago, 15 years ago. Yeah, it's yeah, it's exactly. it's incredible. It's incredible what can change and and what mm-hmm. God can make out of the mess that we make out of ourselves. 
but but to what you said like not not you wouldn't go through those things willingly again but looking back you wouldn't change it because those events make us who we are they allow you a, a perspective and now God's giving you a mission to to reach people that are in a similar position as you so that's beautiful i i would ask what was prison like as a former police officer <laughs> Well, the first year I was in a suicide cell for the whole year, and and that was horrific. I wouldn't want my worst enemy to 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 be isolated and caged like that. But it was my wife that basically said that I was suicide, and I and I was. I mean, I, I can't deny that I wasn't. So the first year uh, I was I was kept inside. So then I, I had to sign a bunch of paperwork saying that I acknowledged that I could be killed on the yard, and I. And, subject to to all these different laws and so no i i signed my my rights away and basically went into general population and there was a several guys that tried to give me a hard time but you know i just said hey uh in prison you really have to affiliate with a gang if you don't you're open for for harassment and but my gang was was the church Right. So I said, hey, listen, you know, I, I'm I'm identifying as a Christian. I'm at the church. I'm neutral. I don't want to get involved in any of your stuff, in anybody else's stuff. You know, and if you need help with anything, I'm there to help you. So most of the people left me alone. Some of the people wanted case advice. Right. Hey, the cops did this. The cops did that. Did they do the right <laughs> thing? You know, so it, it wasn't really too bad, bad for me, to be honest. It, it really wasn't too bad. It was just jail is 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 horrible i mean it's just i thought that when you went to prison they taught you skills they they worked with you to get an education it's just it's just a warehouse you know it's like the forklift comes they they put you up on the shelf and that's it you're done you know and if you're weak um if, if you got money and you're you're able to be preyed on there's guys that are victimized every day there and it's, it's a real shame and the guards don't seem to care. You know, it, the guards are basically the same as cops, right? Hey, you're a bad guy. You deserve what you get. And there is a little bit of truth to that, but not when it comes to being a victim again, right? I mean, you're paying your dues. You're in prison. You're away from your family. Um, your freedoms are taken away that doesn't mean you still have to be a victim, you know, right. and, and the hospital system there is horrible. Praise God. God stayed with me. I didn't have one blister or, or ulcer on the bottom of my feet for the entire time. When I got back home, I did. And I was in a cast for a long time. When I got <laughs> home. But God kept me healthy there. Wow. And, um, but I know people that, that lost their legs, they lost arms and stuff for infections that the, the COs, the guards, wouldn't take you to the hospital, you know? And then when they finally do take you to the hospital, the doctor said, yeah, you know, if you would have been here six weeks earlier, we could have saved this leg. And, you know, but that's, that's the way it is. They, they treat you really bad. I mean, out here in the San Francisco Bay area, there was just uh, three federal prison guards and the, um, the warden just got arrested for raping the, the females in the, in the prison, you know? So they're, they're going to prison now. But it's, that, that's that's what ha- happens. And I don't know if that's related to trauma because these guys see some bad stuff, too. I mean, I've seen some stabbings and stuff that um, I could imagine the guards go through. 
but like I said, like I said, it's for me, it wasn't all that bad. Uh, so I can't complain how horrible it was. Right. Yeah. You, you mentioned being healed from your trauma. Was that while you were in prison going, yeah. doing some of the trainings and all of that? Talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Well, when, when I bailed out, I started going to psychiatrists. Um, actually I went to a phenomenal psychiatrist that, um, was, was a police officer and he, he, when he retired, he became a, a police psychologist so that you really got to know what, what the people go through. And he gave me a lot. He saved my life. He gave me a lot of coping skills to, to manage the um, panic and, and, and anxiety, excuse me, panic and anxiety attacks, but there's no healing. And so when I went to prison, I, I went every week too to a psychologist and a psychiatrist there too. And um, they tried to give me anti-anxiety meds and I, I didn't want to take any of that stuff. But, um, but when I actually studied what the, what the Bible says about it, in other words, it's a spiritual cleansing. That, that's really the, the easiest way to call it. Sin plays havoc in our lives, right? That's why God hates sin is it. I think Paul says it best when the, the, the spirit and the, your, your body, your body, spirit. So the spirit of the world and your spirit clash inside. It's a, it's a war inside you. So I like to describe it as, you know, that you, you're, there's a red light in your car's dashboard that warns you of a pending disaster, right? Something's going to break. So the way I see it is our negative emotions, our, our resentment, our anger, our lashing out at people. Um, things like this is a warning signal by God sent to you saying, hey, you have unresolved issues. You really need to deal with these issues. And if you ignore that, then it, it just gets, the, the pain gets deeper and more extended. And the, the sin in, inside of us, because how we deal with our trauma is normally sinful. It's very rarely is it is it positive. So what I'm talking about is is addictions, right? So we'll, we'll go drink some, some alcohol to feel better, right? Or we'll, we'll, we'll take some pills or, or, or methamphetamine or whatever it is, gambling, um, dangerous sex, um, all these things make us feel better temporarily. But what we're doing is we're trying to numb an, an inward spiritual issue with outside sources, right? Mm -hmm. So when we, we go into figuring out the root cause, and that's what my book's about, is to go back to the root cause. Was it childhood issues? You know, um, what was abandonment? Was it abuse? Or was it later on? Maybe it was a traumatic event later on that's keeping us in our um, in our pain. And if we deal with it from God's perspective, in other words, confessing and repenting for the, for the sins that we. So, in other words, if I were to start um, drinking, and it's not a sin to drink, but it's a sin to to be drunk and, and to not feel your emotions. God gave you emotions for a purpose. If you're numbing them and not feeling them, then that's a sin. So when you acknowledge the sin and, and you you confess it, repent it, you're you're basically cleaning up your side of the street. You got to forgive the people that that harmed you or that you perceive harmed you. You got to ask for forgiveness of of the people that you've harmed. You know this is all part. And once you start peeling this this onion layer and, and getting down to the root cause, that's when your your life changes and, and the Holy Spirit just changes you from the inside out. Not like secular counseling, who they don't have a spiritual component. They just say, okay, well, if you start changing your behavior, pretty soon you'll be changing your thought patterns. And, and that's true if you can do it, right? 
but it like at the addiction center where I am, all of the guys in there have had prior trauma. I mean, some of it's so severe that it really takes a, a long, long time to, to change their behavior, but it's not a, a Christian um, based place. It's a um, secular based place. And I'm not really allowed to teach what God says, but if we could just clean, clean up all, all our sins and, because the sin separates us from God. And once we get back into fellowship with them, that's when the healing and um, the, the peace and joy return to your life. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. It's, I, I love hearing when people say that you, you don't often hear, you don't hear that coming out of enough people's mouths these days. Like it, it's the world has gone very secular and it is all about, what's within you, you know, the power is inside you, you have everything inside you that you need. And, you know, to a certain extent, God has given us everything we need, but we have to bring him along. We have to bring him in. And he is, he's the main part of your life. Like he's given us what we need to live life, to do life, but it's so much better, so much easier. And it's actually our fulfilling our purpose when we're walking step by step with him. So that's, that's beautiful. I I had to think when you mentioned, you know, working with the secular counselors or at, at that institution, have you, have you gone down the road of maybe working at a Christian counseling institution? Or I know you had mentioned you got your, I think you said your Christian counselors degree, or I don't mm-hmm. remember exactly what you called it. What are you doing in there to, to be able to actually bring your faith into some of the counseling that you do? Okay. I, I was, I've only been free now from prison for a couple of years. Right. So, okay. Um, I joined the church and what I'm doing now is I'm doing small groups. So gotcha. I, I do okay. the trauma healing for small groups. Um, you kind of have to prove yourself a little bit before they just, you know, Hey, come on in and counsel people. Are you a felon? <laughs> sure, come on in. You know, we don't right. No, you, you have to prove that you're, you've changed your life. You know, you have to show that you're willing to to really follow God, right? So I'm and working. That's understandable. <laughs> yeah. So, so with, with the book, I I wrote also a, a small group guide, so we could do small groups can do it without me, right? There, and, and it's all centered. Everything is Christ centered, and so. I'm volunteering and doing as much as I can just to prove that I'm not the person that, you know, people assume because people assume when they hear, Oh yeah, he's been in prison. Oh, you know, they go, Oh my gosh, that guy, you know, stay away from him. Probably murdered 50 people. (laughs) And like the police culture, you know, yeah, I have a few friends that um, know who I was. So they they know that something happened because that what I did, my crime wasn't me. Right. I mean, mm. I've been battling um, narcotics for for well, I was a narc for 16 years, but most of my career I've been, um, you know, in, into um, arresting narcotics offenders. But all of a sudden, you know, th- this happened. But the majority of the cops, they're so um, judgmental and um, it, so they judge me as a criminal. They judge me as a piece of crap. And so it's going to take a while for me to to really get back into that community because I really would love to at some point um, be be a police or fire chaplain, you know, because I, I know what they wow. go through, I know what they see on a daily basis, and I believe in my heart that I could be a, a, a huge help. 
I mean, you know, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back, but I, I know what they're going through. So I know when, what to look for, you know, when, when you see someone that's not acting right, um, you know what to look for, but they're yeah. not accepting me. You know, the, I, the police department say, Oh, you got a felony. You, you can't work here. The guys are saying, ah, that guy's a scumbag. He's a crook. And so, you know, maybe, maybe in five years or so things will change. It, you know, I, I don't know what will happen in my life at that time, but um, that's really what I'd really like to do is is do a, some kind of first responder ministry. And that's, mm, that's yeah. why I like to talk and I like to get the word out because it, it is, it's a very difficult job. I mean, you have to have the patience of a pastor. You have to have the the stamina of an athlete and you have to have the knowledge of a, of a judge, right? You have to know all these things. And then, you know, you, all these decisions have to be made in a split second. I'm really a split second. And it's very, very d- difficult. And then when they do make mistakes, man, the world collapses around them, you know, and it's a shame. It really is because cops and firemen, it's not just a career, it's your identity, you know, and that's what makes it the worst thing is it, it's your entire identity. And when your identity is taken away from you and you're, you're hopeless, that that's a, a, a rep- for disaster. That's, that's what suicidal ideation comes in and stuff. So um, that's what I'd like to try to do, but I'm content right now with just helping people who, who just suffered everyday trauma, like, you know, everybody else does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I hadn't realized that it was that recent that you had come out of prison. I, I wasn't trying to insinuate that. No, you should be okay. doing something. Yeah. But no, that's, that's awesome. Like I love, I love seeing that you are pushing to helping that demographic, I I would love to see you be able to get into that. And I, I think given time, you know, God, you follow God, allow him to work through that. He'll he'll open those doors for you. Yeah, maybe yeah. it's not God's plan. You know, he might have something else for me. And, and that's what I've learned. And and I think that's the the, the great thing about, about believing in God and, and trusting in him is that when you do so, it takes the life stresses off of you, you know. Every day there's something that's happening in our lives, right? And normal people, what we do is, is we stress about it. Oh, my gosh, um, there's rumors going around that, that we're, we're being fired. So they stress out for months. Just give it to God. I mean, you just keep doing your best job at work. But if it's meant to be, it's meant to be. You know, if God wants me to lose this job, it's, it's, it's going to happen. And we're not going to be st- – you see what I'm saying is, is you, you just release it. You, you can give – Jesus says, give me all your anxiety, all your worries. I'll carry it for you. You know, mm. and, um, that that's the greatest thing about believing in a God. And, and that's why AA is so um, successful is because it has a spiritual component. You have to give yourself over. To, they say now higher power. But you have to give yourself over to God. And once you do, man. The, the peace and joy. I was I was in an emotional prison before I even went to prison, right? I was I hated myself, I hated life, I hated everything. It took prison to, to bring me out of that prison. And now I have the peace that I never ever believed that I could achieve, right? And and that's it's all God. Mm-hmm. Isn't it interesting how you mentioned that well, they call it a higher power and all that? It's it's interesting. You know, seeing all of these, whether they be psychiatrists or, or coaches or whatever kinds of organizations in in their 
attempt or I mean, I, I say not attempt, but they deliberately avoid all things God. But they still, you know, in a roundabout way, everything comes back to spiritual, higher powers, uh, a powerful being. Uh, but they do everything they can to not bring God into it. And and that, I don't know, it, it baffles me. It, it, the only thing I can think of is that there's something else, you know, the enemy is out there holding yeah, them back yeah. from that. <laughs> That's true. And that's, that's what it says. That's what Paul says, right? Is that the enemy blinds us to the, the simplicity of the gospel. And it's only God that can reveal that, right? And that's why it's it's your job. And this is why I'm, I'm grateful to you to, to put out there, hey, God heals. God, God does this. God does that. Because every time we plant the seed, you know, and they start becoming curious more about God, then God will unveil that. Like I said, the, the gospel is so simple that your sins are forgiven. All you got to do is ask. Just the, the relief of all that stress of guilt and shame for the stuff that we do every day, right? I'm not talking about criminal activity. I'm just talking about the, the hate, the gossip, the, the, the just treating each other horribly. I mean, especially in this political world right now, everybody hates everybody. Mm. And, and it's just so funny that that both sides claim God, you know, but... Nobody acts like it. Nobody acts like that. You know, they've read the Bible. It's, it's right. Crazy. Exactly. <laughs> That's so true. Norm, what piece of advice would you leave us with tonight? Be open and honest with your family. So if you're, if you're going through something difficult, don't keep it a secret. I did that. And when you keep things secret, it'll eventually come out. And when it does come out, it could come out explosive. So in other words, if I would have just talked to my family, hey, I'm not going to give you the details of what happened today, but I'm a, I'm a little bit stressed and I just need a little bit of time. And, you know, um, let's do something afterwards that's that's family oriented, because if you keep it in, like when, whenever I came home from work, even if I had the worst horrific day, my wife would say, hey, how, how was work? Oh, fine. No, nothing happened. <laughs> no, I, I mean, it's it's just crazy what we do. So be open and honest. Talk about the stuff that's going on in your life with somebody that you can trust. And if you if you have nobody, nobody at all to trust, journal. Journal is the next best thing. And, and I know a lot of men go, I don't want to have a diary. It's really not. <laughs> it's just putting your thoughts on paper. Because a lot of times when we go through um, rough times, our, our brain doesn't process these events. And if they if the brain is not allowed to process these things and move the event into uh, the long-term memory, what happens is this reoccurring thoughts come all the time, these uh, flashbacks or, or nightmares. And journaling is really, really good to, um, to, to get your mind and body to, to process these events. But number one thing is just to talk to somebody. Don't keep it in. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Journaling is a habit that I'm, I'm working on building. <laughs> It's tough, right? Because you, you know, men don't grow up with you know diary and stuff. But right, <laughs> it's um, and then do a, a prayer uh, journal. You know, it's the same journal, but because if you say a prayer and you ask for something, a month later you go back and you look, and you could see how many of the things that you prayed for actually came true, and that builds faith in God. That builds trust in God. You know. And the more you trust, the more you can release your life to them, 
the more you, you, you don't have to stress about things because we always stress over stuff. And then it, it, the things we stress about never happens. It, it's just funny. You go, wow, I stressed for months over that. Why, why did I do that? Because you didn't have trust. I, I heard some someone say once, you know, I, I stressed out over or 90% of the things I stress out about don't happen. So that means it works, right? That's what it works. <laughs> right? Uh, where can people find you and keep up release of your book if, if so they can go buy their own copy? My website is um, Christ-CenteredHealing.com. Christ-CenteredHealing.com. And I'm on Facebook at, at the same name. And you, you can have links to the book there. Um, there's there's some videos. I haven't really been keeping up with them. But um, a lot of prayers are on there, too. If, if you want some healing prayers, you can download them in Word where you can personalize them to yourself um, about anxiety, about trauma, about forgiveness, all kinds of prayers on there. Awesome. I will drop those links in the show notes. I really appreciate you joining me tonight. It's been a fun conversation. It has. Thank you. Thank you for getting out the word. God bless. Yes, sir.